0: Welcome to the serialized podcast edition of Paper Arrows, a presentation in six episodes of my master's thesis in geography at the University of California, Berkeley, based on field research I conducted in Honduras in 2000 and 2001. I am the author and narrator, Daniel Graham. Episode 6, Resisting Babylonia, Crescendo and Coda. Today we pick up where we left off, on the Capitol Plaza in Tegucigalpa, protesting the murder of Gualaco coffee grower Carlos Flores, putatively shot by outsiders intent on building the Babylonia hydroelectric project, a construction that usurped patrimonio and threatened the livelihoods of those living in affected communities. Let's jump right in. 4.4, 4.4, 4, The Crackdown, July 18th to 20th. That night, about 12.30, one of the women protesters shook me awake, whispering urgently, Daniel, the police have come. I looked in the direction she was pointing, toward the street, and saw about 15 police standing at the plaza entrance. I asked the woman if she knew what the police were doing there, and she answered, I think they're here to kick us out. Police troops arrived by the truckload, and even by bus, forming a line shoulder to shoulder on the street side of the plaza. Moncha, a feisty gualacana of fervent evangelical belief, began to pray loudly, asking Jesus to deliver the group from evil. Other demonstrators, both women and men, began to loudly supplicate the police to remember their rural roots, not to act against the poor campesinos of Olancho. As the police's numbers quickly swelled to something approximating 50, I filmed and photographed them from close range and photo-documented the events as they unfolded. To my surprise, no attempt was made to confiscate my cameras or to stop me from taking pictures. The police moved from the west street end of the plaza to the south end. In an architectural metaphor reflecting status and power differentials between legislators and commoners, the Capitol Plaza is located physically beneath the Congress building, which is raised above street level on pillars. The Congressional Chamber thus provides a roof that protects protesters from sun and rain. The police plan was to push the demonstrators out from under the Congress building and onto an adjacent, uncovered plaza to the north. They began to move slowly forward while the higher-ranking officers stood behind them and barked to the protesters to leave the plaza. The demonstrators would not willingly cede the plaza to the police, and they were furious that such an action should happen at one in the morning. They yelled at the police, reminding them that some of the people they were pushing around were small children and pregnant women. Gustavo Montoya, the Catholic lay minister I had met on my first trip to El Ocotal, took the group's megaphone and began speaking, trying at once to calm his comrades and reason with the police. Imagine how you will feel, he said to the police, if a child is harmed by your actions. He urged them to exercise reason and compassion. It was clear that some of the gathered policemen and women did not want to be there. Others appeared eager to engage the demonstrators physically. Whatever their feelings about it may have been, they all pushed forward as a unit. Despite the climate of fear and confusion among the protesters, one of the demonstrators had the presence of mind to convince the women with young children to stay where they were, on the ground. He reasoned that the police would not dare to harm any of the infants. Most of the women agreed and they remained where they were. This tactic worked with partial success. Most of the women with small children were lying rather closely together and they formed an island that proved difficult for the police to remove. Police closed in around these women and children but did not act immediately to remove them. The rest of the police continued forward, pushing the other demonstrators out from under the Congress building. Only hours later would the police manage to move the last remaining women and children. The male demonstrators, wanting to protect their families, picked up lengths of firewood and brandished these against the advancing police. Suddenly, police and protesters clashed physically, trading blows with clubs and firewood. The violence seemed to begin when Carlos Flores's seven-months-pregnant widow swooned and fell. The protesters responded to this upsetting pass by attacking the police line. Carlos's father Martin cut a comic figure as he flourished his stick as though it were a rapier, waving and thrusting it at the shield of one of the oncoming policemen. The chaos worked to the police's favor, and soon they had successfully pushed the group onto Plaza La Merced, an unprotected square just north of the congressional plaza, by about 2 a.m. Several of the Gualaco group's leaders had fled early on and were hiding elsewhere in the city, concerned that the police might act on the outstanding warrants for their arrest. Most remained, however, and several were in shock. Others, angry and indignant, demanded answers from the higher-ranking police officers. One of these officers asked the group to be reasonable. We did everything we could, he said, to avoid any violence. He assured the group that their access to the bathroom would remain in effect and that those who needed attention for any medical problems would receive it. Shortly after he said this, the police blocked access to the bathroom. While all of this was transpiring, a convoy of four buses and nine large trucks was making the long trip from Honduras' western provinces into the capital city, full with perhaps 700 Copin activists. Police held up the convoy various times on technicalities and pretexts, twice along the highway and once more as the protesters marched on foot towards the Capitol building. When the marchers reached the plaza, they peacefully retook it with the original Gualaco protesters and the Copin advance guard of eighty that had arrived earlier in the week. The augmented group celebrated its victory, but the celebration was short lived. Hundreds of anti-riot police poured onto the plaza and surrounding streets and routed the protesters from the plaza and adjacent blocks under a heavy assault of rubber bullets, tear gas, water cannon, and clubs. The scene was reminiscent of Seattle, Quebec, and Genoa. There were bloody people everywhere, with shopkeepers and their employees peering timidly from their shuttered businesses. In the end, 15 to 20 protesters were hospitalized with injuries sustained at the hands of police. Seven police were also reported injured, one with a jaw shattered by a hurled rock. Several protesters were jailed, and some of these people claim they were beaten while in police custody. Circumstances suggest that various state agencies may have colluded to bring about the violent confrontations of July 18th. On July 14th, Security Minister Gautama Fonseca called on National Police Troops to prove themselves in the field, announcing that he would fire seat-warming police officers and promote those officers who exerted themselves. The commanding officer present at the forcible removal of Gualaqueños in the early morning hours of July 18th indicated her orders came from, quote, the highest authorities in Congress. The highest authorities would presumably be a reference to President of Congress Rafael Pineda Ponce, whose presidential campaign managers had cut their teeth working as advisors for General Pinochet in Chile. Pineda Ponce denied he personally ordered the police action, but he asserted it was, quote, time to put the House in order, and said the police were right to strike back at the protesters. Some people think that when they strike an agent on one cheek, the police officer should turn the other. In fact, it's his right to protect himself and, if possible, strike both his adversaries' cheeks. The day after the clash, Pineda Ponce used the heavily guarded Capitol Plaza as his platform for awarding the Gran Cruz con Placa de Oro award to the Taiwanese ambassador in recognition of Taiwan's significant financial contributions to Honduras' development efforts. According to a Tiempo newspaper article, Ambassador Ching-Yang Chang took the opportunity to note that, quote, democracy is an irreversible world tendency and the will of the people is its absolute priority, In the aftermath of the July 18th action, Honduras' national police filed criminal charges against 21 people, including members of the leadership of COPIN, COFADE, and CODE for, quote, "...going too far in the exercise of their constitutionally guaranteed rights." End quote. Berta Oliva, president of COFADE, was accused of inciting the riot, though she only arrived toward the end of the fracas. At the same time that the police were filing charges against leading Honduran activists, Security Minister Gautama Fonseca dismissed the possibility that Hondurans were capable of protesting of their own accord. A newspaper article that appeared on July 20th cited Fonseca as saying the protesters were, quote, being used by intellectuals, in quotes, who live in Tegucigalpa looking for foreign money to organize this type of disorder, end quote. The title of the newspaper article was, Agitators Who Receive Dollars From Abroad Caused Disturbances. During a radio interview on July 19th, I was asked if I was affiliated with a suspected IRA terrorist but the Honduran government itself never issued a direct accusation of any wrongdoing on my part. One result of the police violence on the afternoon of Wednesday, July 18th, was that the protesters were forced to retire to various yards and shelters around the city, which were provided them by Cofade, Code, the Catholic Church, and a sympathetic labor union. Many of the mattresses and other possessions were ruined trampled or stolen by police or inundated by the water cannon. A large number of protesters were forced to sleep in the dirt or on bare cement. Many protesters wore a glazed over, shell shocked look for days afterwards. The following morning, July 19th, several participants and observers of the events of the previous day conducted television and radio interviews. Demonstrations were tense but peaceful as protest leaders decided not to try to break through the heavy police cordon that had been placed around at least five square blocks surrounding the capital. On Friday morning, as members of COPIN, COFADE, CODE and the Gualaco leadership met with high-level government ministers to discuss grievances and try to find solutions, representatives of Congress's Casa Cultural arrived on the plaza to bestow a wreath upon the statue of Chief Lempira. School children played marimba while congressional staffers taped cartoonish cardboard and construction paper arrows onto Lempira's quiver and placed a large flower wreath on an easel next to the statue. The spokeswoman at the event addressed the assembled cameramen as though she were speaking to a vast throng, though in fact the plaza was all but empty. Quote, Today is el día de Lempira, a day to celebrate what it means to be Honduran, she said. Evidently aware of my affiliation with the Gualaqueños, she turned to face me and intoned, quote, and to be Honduran means to be born in Honduras and to respect the law. End quote. For this, she received applause from her small retinue of colleagues. She then spoke of Pineda Ponce's blood relation to Limpira, deduced by dint of the congressman's birth in the region where Limpira had lived and died. In fact, she informed her television audience Limpira's quote, indigenous blood runs through all our veins. Waiting until she finished, the Copin Indians arrived at the plaza en masse. They ascended the steps to the Lempira statue and loudly decried the government's duplicitous treatment of indigenous and other disadvantaged peoples in Honduras. Berta Cáceres, one of the Copin organizers, said, "'They want to give Lempira a wreath because they think he's dead. But they're wrong. He is still alive.' A great cheer went up as several of the Copin members picked up the wreath and threw it to the ground where it was trampled under dozens of stomping feet. Lempira's paper arrows were similarly dispatched. Somewhat incongruously, with this show of defiance of the central state, the Copin demonstrators finished with a nationalistic flourish, wrapping Lempira's statue in the Honduran flag and perching a cowboy hat atop his head. For several hours, and in sweltering heat, Copin demonstrators remained gathered around Lempira's image, railing at the government while dozens of police troops stood on guard to prevent anyone from returning to the covered part of the plaza. As this was going on, coordinators from Conasim and from Copin conducted negotiations with a government panel at the Ministry of Governance. At the end of the day, negotiators came out to announce that several government ministers would fly out to Gualaco by helicopter the following day to see things for themselves. That night, I drove out with Adelmo and some of the others who wanted to get the village ready for the visit. Accompanying us were two Copin members sent by their group as goodwill representatives. 4.5. The Two Gualacos, July 21st. Somehow, Enerhisa also knew about the visit. On the morning of Saturday, July 21st, both the anti dam group and Enerhisa affiliated people made numerous trips into the hamlet of El Ocotal, hauling their respective constituents in to prove that the community supported their side of the conflict. The contrast in demographic breakdown was marked between the two groups. The anti-dam group was comprised of women, children, and men of all ages, while the pro-dam group consisted primarily of young men from their late teens through their thirties. According to some of my anti-dam companions, the vast majority of the ostensibly local pro-DAM group were actually from the neighboring municipalities of San Esteban and San Francisco de la Paz. Congressman Jack Arrevolo, not present that day, was later to cite the significant pro-Energisa turnout as confirmation, quote, that more than 50% of the population is in favor of the project and that those who are opposed are the mayor, the priest, and a few other people, quote. The commission, which had promised to arrive around noon, was late in getting to Okotal. All the members of the pro-dam contingent spent the afternoon behind locked gates within the Anerhisa compound, while the dam's opponents milled about on the main dirt road. As trucks filled with PHB supporters drove past the protesters on their way in and out of the compound, they spun their wheels to cover their adversaries with dust. The protesters responded with sneers and insults, despite appeals for calm from Father Freddy and other organizers who were present. As the dam opponents waited for the commission helicopter to appear, one of the Copin activists, Domingo Segura, took the opportunity to proselytize. Stepping up onto a small stage next to the road, the Lenka man drew a small black book from his pants pocket, raised it over his head, and waved it, at the crowd. This book, Domingo told them, could be their salvation. The book he held in his hand was a Spanish-language copy of the International Labor Organization's Convention on Indigenous and Tribal Peoples, better known simply as ILO Convention 169. In 1994, Honduras became one of the first countries in Latin America to ratify the convention, which commits its signatories to ensuring that indigenous peoples living within the national territory receive fair treatment in the arenas of land tenure, employment, education, health, and politics. The law stipulates that state governments must recognize indigenous communities' right to self-determination. Part 1, Article 1, Section 1, says that The people's concerned shall have the right to decide for their own priorities for the process of development as it affects their lives, beliefs, institutions, and spiritual well-being, and the lands they occupy or otherwise use, and to exercise control, to the extent possible, over their own economic, social, and cultural development. In addition, They shall participate in the formulation, implementation, and evaluation of plans and programs for national and regional development, which may affect them directly. Section 4 of Part 1, Article 7, adds that governments shall take measures, in cooperation with the peoples concerned, to protect and preserve the environment of the territories they inhabit. This was all very well, but what good would this do for the people of Gualaco? The best part of ILO 169, claimed the animated speaker, was that whether they knew it or not, the Gualaqueños themselves had indigenous characteristics and that they could qualify to receive the protections and guarantees offered by Convention 169. Section 2 of Part 1, Article 1, lays out a surprisingly simple basis for identifying indigenous or tribal groups. Quote, self-identification as indigenous or tribal shall be regarded as a fundamental criterion for determining the groups to which the provisions of this convention apply, quote. By Domingo's reasoning, the Gualaqueño Campesinos had much more in common with the Lencas of Copín than they did with the dominant sectors of Honduran society. Domingo had looked around the village that morning, and he said he recognized many parallels between this village and his own Lenca village in western Honduras. Economically disadvantaged peasants in places like Gualaco were constant targets of pejorative racializing attributions like indio or negro by better-off lighter-skinned ranchers and city dwellers. If the Gualaquinos were going to be indios anyway, Domingo seemed to be suggesting, why not go all the way and become indígenas? ILO 169 gave them that option. All it would take was for the Gualaqueños themselves to recognize and express their latent indigeneity on more empowering terms. Domingo read extensively from the little book, stopping frequently to engage the crowd. "'What has the government sector done with your resources here? Exploit? Exploit!' "'The river is your resource,' answered Domingo. "'That's right,' said one woman in the crowd. "'The land is your resource.' Of course it is, replied someone else. And the timber, I believe other people are taking it from you. The crowd erupted in angry epithets. Pointing then to his book, Domingo said, Here's where we're going to pin Carlos Flores' cross on Señor Gautema Fonseca, here in Article 15. This is your property. This rally broke up in excitement at the sight of the commission's helicopter. The commission scheduled to arrive at midday, swooped in sometime shortly after 4 p.m., more than three hours behind schedule. As the helicopter made its approach, more than 100 pro-dam supporters flooded onto the main road through El Ocotal and faced off against the dam's opponents. When the government officials arrived, escorted by armed guards, they announced that, regrettably, they only had time for a 30-minute visit. One of the ministers then expressed surprise at the sizable number of pro-DAM constituents. Members of the significantly discomfited opposition group stumbled angrily and ineffectively through the 15 minutes the commission gave them to say their piece. One group leader accused the minister of governance of having close connections with Enerjisa. The minister angrily denied the charge. The dam's opponents did manage to express to the gathered commission members that the dam supporters were not members of the community, that they had been paid off to lobby for the dam. The ministers then went to hear out the other side. One of the dam supporters spoke credibly about his bewilderment at the opponent's fury. He said he could not understand why there could not be more room for tolerance by both sides. He related how he had become ostracized by the project's opponents simply because he had chosen to embrace the PHB for the income and other opportunities it provided. Shortly after hearing that testimony, one of the ministers asked the crowd, How many of you are from this region? They all yelled, All of us! And, And how many of you are from Gualaco? Everybody! "'Okay, then,' said the minister. I was recording this exchange with my tape recorder. Someone in the pro-dam group yelled out, "'Fuera, gringo!' which means, "'Get out, gringo!' Pretty soon there were dozens chanting, "'Fuera, gringo!' Governance Minister Ruiz asked me to leave the immediate area, since I wasn't Honduran. I did so. Following their brief visit, the ministers left Soon after, a lot of trucks pulled out of the Energisa compound and headed out of Elocotal with their beds full of passengers. I took photos of the vehicles as they left and made sure to get their license plate numbers, thinking this might be important if these trucks were used in future Energisa scare campaigns. I received many angry glares and threatening gestures from the truck's drivers and passengers as they passed. We would be returning to the capital that night but first Adelmo wanted to show me his nature reserve. We walked through the reserve to the Rio Bavilonia. Along the way, Adelmo pointed out the signs he had painted and posted. One of the signs read, The biotic resources are living, the abiotic or not, but they give us existence. As we walked, I asked Adelmo whether it was possible that the people who supported the dam were good people, with whom Adelmo and the others just happened to have a difference of opinion. No, he said, those who supported the dam were sellouts. He listed the names of several sellouts. In each case, he said they had sold their convictions at a price of precisely a million limpidas. I asked him what he had thought of Domingo's theory of indigenous gualaqueños. He told me, "'You know, it's not that strange.' He said we have a lot in common with people over there, and he said he would think some more about it. We arrived at the river. It was dusk, and the parakeets chattered overhead. Effusive vegetation crowded the banks, and we had to push our way through to get to the quietly babbling water. What struck me, on seeing it up close, was how small the river was. I turned to Adelmo and asked him one more question. Was this fight, when it came right down to it, all about the coffee? Adelmo glared at me momentarily before replying. Is that what you think? That I'm only doing this because of the coffee? I don't even have any coffee up there. I used to have some coffee in another zone over there, but it was destroyed by Mitch. That day at the bridge when the police came and started arresting. I ran straight here. I sat down on that rock and just stayed there for hours, thinking about all those communities that won't get water. Then, his eyes moist, he turned away. We loaded the truck with passengers and left with the last of the failing light. Along the way, we were tailed by a series of different pickup trucks that seemed to be coordinating the pursuit in a relay, each vehicle following for a distance of some miles before passing us, then pulling off to the side of the road. This continued for most of the length of the 150 mile trip. As our truck made the final descent into the capital at about midnight, a large 4x4 truck with tinted windows followed us through the winding city streets to the Kofade headquarters, where we were staying. When we got inside the building, the truck continued circling around the block, honking and revving its engine at times, for the next two hours. At that point, I decided it was time for me to leave the country. On Monday, July 23rd, I flew back to my home in the Bay Area. 4.6 Epilogue. The Gualaqueños battle, of course, did not cease with my departure. When it was discovered that the Central American Bank for Economic Integration was the primary lender for the project, the protesters laid plans to appeal to the bank to freeze its loans to Energisa. After the protesters lobbied in front of the Tegucigalpa based international headquarters for the Central American Bank, news reports announced that the bank was suspending all its funding not only for the Babilonia Hydroelectric Project but for all hydroelectric projects in the country, pending some assurance about the state of Honduras' juridical health. The announcement was made by Jack Arrevalo, who explained to reporters that 160 megawatts electrical production would be lost because foreigners have grown leery of investing in a country where what's approved today can be destroyed tomorrow by capricious protesters. In fact, however, the bank never did suspend its financing of the dam. In a newspaper advertisement entitled Banco Centroamericano No Suspendio Financiamiento a Energiza, the Central American Bank corrected Arrebalo's latest misstatements, explaining that project funding remained online for the Babylonia Hydroelectric Project, but that the bank would require mitigation measures be taken if technical deficiencies in the project were discovered. On the morning of Monday, July 23rd, the same day I left Honduras, Mayor Rafael Yoa, Father Freddy Benitez, and Sister Carmelita Luis David Pérez were shot at from a passing truck as they drove from Tegucigalpa to Gualaco. In spite of everything, the hardiest protesters held out for several weeks longer in Tegucigalpa. On August 20th, 30 of them again marched on the capital. This time they performed a kind of environmental passion play with three crucified demonstrators representing the park, the municipality, and the waterfall. Another three of the demonstrators were dressed as death while still others carried signs depicting the area's endangered fauna. But Congress made no move to halt Energisa's project. None of the top officials at Energisa were seriously investigated. The Central American Bank did not suspend its funding the papers quit running the gualaco story and the protest ran out of steam family by family they returned to their homes in the hamlets and villages of gualaco the rains had come too late to save the main maize crop and the coming months would be difficult some of them say they will continue to resist but they confess they aren't sure how rafael pineda ponce failed in his bid for the presidency Hondurans voted in rival candidate Ricardo Maduro on a campaign of zero tolerance for crime. While Pineda Ponce had also projected a strong anti-crime message, his heavy-handed treatment of the Gualaqueños reinforced Hondurans' perception of Pineda Ponce, also the older of the two candidates by more than two decades, as an anachronistic Caudillo-style ruler. At the time of this writing, May 2002, Energiza is nearing completion of its project, bravely pulling Honduras forward into the realm of modernity and progress. Section 5. Conclusion One evening as dusk crept over the plaza, Beto Linares and I were sitting at the base of Chief Lempira's statue, talking about politics and patrimonio. Prompted by a question I had asked him, Beto leaned forward to tell me almost conspiratorially, What was wrong with Honduras' shift towards increasing political decentralization? The law is great, but the follow-up is terrible. After granting greater autonomy to local communities one day, the state could easily pull it back the next. Quote, The state comes in overnight and implements projects without any restrictions from anyone. Well, no one's going to stop the government, and then after doing something, they just wind up undoing it. Prohibitions are only for the poor. That is what we see. End quote. This paper set out to look at some of the ways peasants and their antagonists square off in battles over land and land-based resources in Olancho. In an introductory section and three vignettes centered on the municipio of Gualaco, I have tried to illustrate something of the range of spatial as well as discursive practices. Forced resettlement, taking bridges, posting security guards outside of elementary schools, but also telling stories and yelling loudly and acting out that constitute territoriality between Olanchano peasants and the various interests that have tried over the course of centuries to wrest away control of the land. While noting peasants' great disadvantage vis-à-vis landed elites, moneyed investors, and agencies of the central state, this study has taken seriously these subordinated actors' attempts to defend their means of subsistence from a panoply of more powerful forces. When the peasant subsistence needs interfered with the international project of capital accumulation, however, the Gualaqueños' arsenal of defensive weapons showed little more efficacy than Chief Lempira's paper arrows. At the same time, all the government's laudable legislation, from Decreto 1987-87, to the Ley de Municipalidades, to ILO Convention 169, were suddenly just so much paper when the higher calling of economic progress demanded congressional stonewalling, ministerial ledger domain, judicial inaction, and police brutality. There was more at stake than 4.4 megawatts of electrical energy production, after all the IMF-brokered $900 million debt reduction package could still be rescinded if progress were not made toward the privatization of the energy sector. Energisa's ability to continue with the installation of its hydroelectric facility in spite of its well-documented criminal behavior and over the loud protests of Gualaco's mayor makes a mockery of Honduras' Ley de Municipalidades. It reveals the perspicacity of Slater's observation about the futility of administrative reform without a corresponding modicum of national autonomy from outside interests. Quote, No regional development ipso facto can bring about self-reliant regional development, the enunciated aim of national policy. For such a development to be feasible, there needs to be some kind of concerted strategy for national self-reliance vis-à-vis the influence and interests of international capital. Slater, 1989. However, this is not enough. The circumstances in Honduras also clearly show that the state is also beholden to local elites. Ironically enough, the case of Honduras demonstrates that the weakest states are also among the most abusive. In the preface, I put forward a hypothesis that peasants' territorial actions and words are more than mere strategy that territorial consequences are sometimes better described as effects of peasants' politicized but nevertheless very real self-expression. Related to Hall's and Lee's conceptions of articulation, Anna Singh's discussion of cultural mobilization expresses well the liminal, dynamic, and often ambivalent positioning that informs the sort of high-stake territorial politics we have seen play out in Gualaqueño's lives. Singh, 1999 Singh recognizes the performative aspects of groups' cultural mobilizations while maintaining that such performance does not imply a lack or loss of authenticity. Quote, "Performance does not make the performers frauds; instead it mobilizes identity, making it work in the world." End quote. (Singh 1999). It seems to me though that the question of authenticity is an important one. For a shifting repertoire of group expression can easily give rise to plausible charges of crass ad hoc opportunism, if not charlatanry. But if we recall that peasants' actions, whether we wish to call them articulations or cultural mobilizations or something else, are conditioned always by the class and political structures within which they are located— And if we recall the schizophrenic character of government policies and actions to which the Gualaqueños have been forced to respond, we can see that the degree of peasants' agency in their actions is actually quite circumscribed. Under such unstable conditions as Olanchano peasants have had to face in their fight to maintain access to their means of subsistence, the land, it seems inappropriate to scrutinize their performances for inconsistencies, At any rate, to recognize any cultural or political expression as other than a single frame in a constantly moving picture is to deny all life and agency to its subjects. Finally, to assert that the peasants' room for maneuver was limited in the fight over Babylonia is not to imply that their struggle was unimportant or without value. The Gualaquenos' very public struggle mobilized elements of Honduran civil society that had lain dormant since the dirty war of the 1980s to some degree that cannot be quantified with any certainty, the public's disgust with its government's treatment of the Gualaqueños and the Copín activists contributed to the sound electoral defeat of Congressman Rafael Pineda Ponce in his bid for the presidency. Whether more wholesale changes can be expected within the Honduran polity in the near future, or even whether the Ocotaleños will be able to persist under the imperious gaze of Energisa and its armed detachment, are matters I don't have the heart to discuss. I have come to the conclusion, however, that whatever solutions the Gualaqueños come up with, they will not be able to rest their hopes on the state, nor on their fugitive hero, Canuto. This concludes our story, though not, of course, the ongoing struggle over rural land and livelihood in Honduras. I hope you will come away with questions, curiosity, and an interest in learning more. If that happens, I encourage you to direct your energy towards educating yourself and others about ongoing struggles by rural and indigenous communities to control and steward their land, water, and other natural resources in Honduras and elsewhere around the world. In today's narrative, you heard mention of Bertha Cáceres, a key leader in Copín, the civic council of popular and indigenous organizations of Honduras, invoking the name of the historical figure Chief Lempira in defense of local people's right to collective usufruct of, of their land, rivers, trees, and lifeways. Bertha was issuing a challenge to the dominant discursive notion that sustainable development in Honduras can be financed on the backs of rural people and underwritten by the resting away of peasants and indigenous peoples' access to the natural resource base that undergirds their way of life. In 2003, intrigued by Bertha and Copin, I traveled to the Department of Intibucá to conduct a 15-month study into their movement. In the process, Bertha and I became friends. In 2015, Bertha won the prestigious Goldman Environmental Prize, considered by some the Nobel Prize for the Environment. The following year, she was assassinated by men and the employee of the Aguasarca Hydro Dam project in western Honduras. As in the case of Babilonia, the intellectual authors of Bertha's killing remain free and largely unchallenged. You can help change that by learning more and speaking up. Start by reading Nina Lacani's terrific new book, Who Killed Berta Cáceres? Dams, Death Squads, and an Indigenous Defender's Battle for the Planet, available in hardback from Verso Books. If you would like to reach out to me, drop me a line at DanielGrahamPhD at gmail.com.